When Apoorva Mandavili wanted to write about ventilation in schools, she knew exactly where to start. A music room. A place where people are packed together, breathing the same air, singing loudly. So she went to see Keith Oxman, a music teacher at East High School in Denver. He has been at the school for a very long time. He's in his mid-60s, and he's the oldest staff member there. He's nominated for a Grammy, and he's just a very cool person. Apoorva covers science and health for The New York Times, which for the past three years has meant mostly writing about COVID. As we know from your reporting and many other people's reporting, singing, music, particularly in poorly ventilated areas, is a way that COVID can spread easily. So what were Keith Oxman's concerns when he was faced with the COVID pandemic? The reason I wanted to see the music room was precisely for the reasons you just mentioned, because music rooms are sort of ideal breeding grounds for the virus to thrive and spread. And Keith Oxman's music room is is sort of a tight space. You know, it's a reasonably big music room, but the ceilings are very low. And there was a lot of equipment and they had, you know, a lot of stands and chairs and, and the windows were closed and sort of felt a little bit crowded in there. And he said, you know, there are all these things you're supposed to do to make the risk lower, like open the windows, but the windows don't open. It's hard to have fans on because then the sheet music starts flying around. I don't know that he ever really got to a place where he felt very comfortable because the ventilation in that room was never really improved. I'm asking a poor of these questions because it's not just music rooms. Kids are back to school, COVID is spiking again, and things like masks and testing are unfortunately fraught political issues. Improving ventilation seems like a no-brainer, something people can agree on. But here we are, more than three years after the start of the pandemic. How's the inside air quality these days? Not great. (laughs) We have a lot of very old schools in this country and a lot of schools that are so old that you can't actually modernize their ventilation systems. And a lot of schools haven't even really thought about it. You know, they have so many other things to worry about. And so what you have is a situation where kids are going back to school with no, you know, ventilation that's no better than it was two years ago, three years ago. And so already you're starting to see the results, right? Just last week, there were schools in southern Texas and Kentucky that had to close because there were so many students and staff that were sick with some kind of respiratory illness, which they said, you know, COVID, flu, whatever, but probably COVID because it's too early for flu. There are some universities that are bringing back masking requirements and they're doing all these other things. But I still see that the conversation is not really about air quality in the way that it needs to be. So today on the show, we're going to have that conversation. What we need to do to make indoor air safer, why it hasn't been done, and how it could benefit us all. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. I think to back up for someone who hasn't been thinking about this a lot and underline why this is so important, I wonder if you could like introduce me to the average U.S. school building in 2020, 2019. How old was it? How well ventilated was it? Like, how did the air move around? There didn't move around very much or very well because the average school building in 2020 was about 50 years old. 
And a lot of buildings with windows painted shut for various reasons. A lot of times it's it's because of these days things like gun violence or in East High, the music room windows were closed in part because they didn't want students climbing up onto the roof. And so the, the average school building is old, decrepit, decaying, and in very poor condition. It's not really set up to be clean and providing you know, clean air to the students. And how much, if at all, has that changed from that moment to 2023? It has changed some. I don't want to paint a totally bleak picture here. I think that there are schools that have tried to do things. In a lot of cases, it's been something really low-tech, like just opening their windows if possible. There are schools with plans to do more, um, and there are some schools that have done a lot, that have, you know, really overhauled their ventilation systems. Those are fewer and far between. You know, there there are schools that never really still talk about any of this stuff at all. They don't even talk about COVID. And so you've got the, the whole range from schools in California that have done everything to schools in places like Iowa that have done nothing and don't want to. It can be incredibly difficult to talk about COVID and schools without spiraling into second-guessing and arguments about closures and remote learning. But what I wanted to find out from Apoorva is what the data said about ventilation, specifically what role ventilation or lack thereof might have played in COVID outbreaks in schools. Yeah, the data on that is not as as clear-cut as we would like, in part because, you know, schools were sort of opening and closing and not a lot of people were thinking about doing studies in the way that, you know, you'd need to do them to get clear answers. But we do have some data points. The CDC did one study in schools in Georgia and found that schools that improved their ventilation saw something like a 40% drop in COVID cases. There was another study that came out of Italy that said the the drop in cases was more like 70 plus percent. So there is some indication that improvements to ventilation are helpful. And, you know, I want to point out that it's not just helpful for COVID. Good air quality is good for lots of things. It's, It's good for cognition, memory, focus, good health, you know, not having your asthma get worse. Just, you know, all kinds of things that are important. What kind of toll does it take on students if the air quality in a school is poor or or just not what it could be? Well, very directly, it has an effect on health. You know, there are a lot of kids in the United States who have asthma, and that's another one that is worse in poorer parts of the country and poorer neighborhoods. And longer term, it also has an effect on cognition and memory. You can actually see drops in test scores. And we know, for example, that air pollution is terrible for young people, and air pollution is in fact tied to higher mortality. So there are just so many problems that arise from being exposed to air pollutants, from being exposed to high heat, from being exposed to pathogens. Improved ventilation seems like such a no-brainer. Like, no matter where you stand on remote learning, whether schools opened too early, closed too early, all of those things, like, it just seems to make sense. And there was, in fact, a lot of money appropriated for this in federal funds. How how much money was in the American Rescue Plan to do this kind of improved air quality work? Altogether, there is about $200 billion that was allotted for all kinds of improvements to schools. And a lot of that could be used for ventilation if schools so desired. There were some things that they needed to pay attention to, like improvements in um, learning loss and things like that. But Certainly, the money could have been used for air quality. And there was also other money that was given to states and territories that could be funneled into ventilation improvements. So really, I mean, more money than has ever been available for this kind of work. And yet, 
there's a gap. Is that a standard kind of money has been appropriated but not allocated kind of gap that you sometimes see in politics? Or is it more complex than that? It's more complex than that. I think the money, if people really wanted to use it, is there, but there's multiple problems along the way. So some school administrators don't know that the money is available. East High's principal, for example, had no idea. There are other people who know about it but don't know how to go about applying for it. Some of the schools I talked to that did the best were schools where, you know, the parents were really heavily involved and knew how to navigate these systems and knew how to apply and get things done. So that automatically favors richer districts. Absolutely. And also schools with enough staff to worry about these things, to help the parents do those things, and then staff to maintain those improvements once you actually get the money and and make the improvements, access to resources. There's so many ways in which equity starts to play a role. Uh, And also schools to begin with, the ones that need the most help are the ones that are in the poorest areas urban schools where students are studying right next to highways and factories. They're the ones that need the biggest improvements in ventilation. And those schools are often sort of hardest pressed to make improvements because they have so many other things going on that they need to worry about. You mentioned speaking with school leaders. What did they tell you about the process of even trying to get this funding? A lot of them don't know what kind of money is available, how much is available, how what they're actually supposed to do to get it. You know, it's, a lot of the information is also at the school district level, and school districts are the ones that have to make the decisions and help the schools. But across the board, what I kept hearing is just that they're also all overwhelmed. I think learning loss and students' mental health problems and gun violence, these are things that are really on the minds of school administrators and school district officials. Even though air quality is as important as it is, it just isn't able to compete with all these other more urgent priorities that they all have. When we come back, shouldn't someone, maybe the government, make this a priority? I wonder if this summer might move the needle at all. After all, you and I are both in New York. We had dramatically poor air quality this summer, air quality that a lot of cities around the world experience more normally than we do. And then this morning, as I was getting ready to talk to you, there was a post in a parents group that I'm a part of about school and being closed for extreme heat because there is no air conditioning. Do you think that this moment might move some parents and students themselves to start pushing for this? I hope so. I think you're right in that there seems to be this sort of push overall because now it's the pressure is coming from multiple angles. Before, maybe it was only heat in you know a couple of weeks of the summer or in August after schools began in a lot of the country, or maybe it was just wildfire in very isolated parts of the country. Certainly nobody was thinking about respiratory diseases, but now we have flu, RSV, COVID on the respiratory disease front. And we have wildfires that are affecting not just a few parts of the country, but really the whole country and very frequently. And now we also have incredibly hot days for much longer stretches than we used to have. And so all of a sudden, there are many reasons to worry about what air quality looks like inside a school. Your story did seem to note some tentative progress. Tentative is a good word for it, I think, because it's very, you know, they're baby steps. Because I think what really would bring about change is if you had a ventilation czar or an agency that really owned this issue and pushed for it, which we don't have at the moment. You know, nobody yeah. nobody owns air quality. It's not 
OSHA's responsibility because it's OSHA only does workplace. It's not the EPA's responsibility because EPA does outdoor air and indoor air only in terms of certain specific chemicals, but not indoor air overall. It's not the CDC's responsibility because they don't make laws. So really, we have the CDC issuing recommendations and we have professional organizations that come up with standards, but they're not enforceable by law. So there's not really any major push to change things. But this May, we did have the CDC come out with a recommendation that schools should aim for five air exchanges an hour. It means, you know, the sort of equivalent of having all the air in the room replaced five times an hour. Like being on an airplane. Like being on an airplane, except airplanes are actually much better than that. They're, they're really hmm. great. So there are some steps towards it. But honestly, unless we have laws that really force change, I'm not sure how much of this is going to you know, move, except on a volunteer basis, you know, sporadic change here and there. Okay, so if you are a parent or a student or you work in a school and you are listening to this or read your story and are freaking out, what are some solutions? There are some really low-tech solutions that parents and staff of schools can adopt. Uh, you know, the very first thing you can do is actually go out and get air filters. There are air filters that are relatively inexpensive that are great at cleaning the air. You might need some help, and there are some online tools that you can use to figure out how many you might need for a room of a particular size. There's also something called a Corsi Rosenthal box, which is this really sort of MacGyvered invention that Richard Corsi, who's one of the experts that I talked to, you know, he and another scientist came up with it. But there are schools across the country where parents sort of made them on their own. You know, you just need box fans and, and tape and some other things. And those are really inexpensive. So there are things that they can do. But if they want to sort of really step it up, I would say pressure your school districts to really make changes in the level of air quality to overhaul HVAC systems in the school district. Pressure your school administrators to really take this matter seriously and to not just, you know, shut down schools every time there's a heat wave or there's, you know, a wildfire or anything else, but rather to really sort of look forward, look ahead, see the problems coming at us and get ready. Is it possible to know when you think about the sort of constellation of interventions, and I'm asking, I guess, from a COVID perspective first, what that might do for the level of respiratory diseases, airborne diseases like COVID inside a school? One of the things that happened during the pandemic is that scientists really learned a lot about how a lot of respiratory viruses behave, not just the coronavirus. So it actually forced them to rethink how the flu spreads, how the common cold spreads, how other coronaviruses that cause common cold spread. And so it really created a paradigm shift in a way in scientific thinking. And, and I think if people paid attention to air quality, it would bring down the number of cases, not just of COVID, but of all of these other illnesses. I mean, we all know that when kids you know, have there's uh, two kids in a classroom that have something, they all get it. And it's not because they're all touching each other all the time. Although, of course, little kids do that. It's because these viruses spread by air. And even before the pandemic, there were schools that had to shut down because they had flu outbreaks. There's a sort of much bigger stake here that we just haven't thought about. When so many things about, I don't know, how we communicate publicly and certainly around COVID feel dire, I wonder if the response to this story made you feel a little hopeful, like, oh, this is something that maybe could get done? I'd like to say so. But again, I really think it has to come from the government. I think it has to be legal. I think it has to be enforceable standards and codes and laws and, you know, agencies that are really taking ownership. I don't see this happening 
especially in the schools that most need it, when it's just being left up to the students or the administrators on a volunteer basis. Does the Biden administration show any interest in taking this on? I will say to give credit where credit is due that the Biden administration has done more on this issue than most other administrations. They've actually talked about it. There was an, a webinar that was held by the Office of Science and Technology Policy where somebody actually just openly said COVID is airborne and that word airborne itself is something that everyone tiptoes around in the government, um, especially with the CDC. And so that in itself is progress. You know, they've held all these sort of helpful webinars to help schools go through whatever they need to go through to figure out what they need and ask for help. The Department of Education has done things. There are some some steps towards doing things more clearly and sort of providing guidance like the CDC's new recommendations. But it's just a beginning. We need lots and lots more. Apoorva Mandavili, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Apoorva Mandavili covers global health and science for The New York Times. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Patrick Fort and Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. And TBD is part of the larger What Next family. We are also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you like what we are doing here, the best way to support us is to subscribe to Slate Plus. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we'll be back with more episodes next week. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.